Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Psalm 67. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Luke 2. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this is such a wonderful passage, and it's been my pleasure now to have preached on this exact same portion of Scripture three specific times. This is now the fourth. And by God's grace, whenever you come to the Scriptures, there are more things to see every time. And... What I've seen as we have been going through this time in the season of Advent and now Christmas where we've been looking at the portions of Scripture in the Psalms that are appointed for the readings during the time of Advent and Christmas, and now today here in the first week of Christmas, we, we see so many wonderful aspects of the life of Jesus Christ, specifically regarding his incarnation, that are often missed when we just look at the New Testament passages. And one of the things that I saw today, uh, or rather this week, uh, when I was preparing this, is just how integrated the Psalms are with the New Testament. And so as we go through this passage today, 
we're, we're going to look at the psalm, but before we look at the psalm, I'm actually going to take us on a short overview of the entire Bible. And um, that, again, is a bold statement. It's a bold claim. But I would encourage you to listen, just like you would listen to any piece of music, to pick up on themes. We're going to be looking at the specific theme of the blessing of Israel. Why were God's people blessed? The psalm that we're going to examine today, as we heard in our reading, describes the purpose And we're going to look at that purpose as a major plan. It is a major part of God's redemptive plan throughout all of history was to bless his people unto a blessing of the nations. In fact, that might be considered to be the most important theme of the scriptures is how does God overcome the fall by blessing the nations that have run away from him and have have run off into sin and idolatry? How does God chase them down? We're going to look at that through the lens of the Old Testament. And then we're going to look at this psalm specifically as it unpacks uh, in a very clear way that purpose fulfilled through the light of God coming to his people. And then we're going to see how in this passage, Simeon is beholding the Christ child and perceiving by the Spirit everything that God is going to do. We're going to look very briefly at the historic context for who the Israelites were at this time when Simeon comes onto the scene. And then finally, we're going to look at Jesus Christ as the light of God to his people. We're going to look specifically at how is Jesus Christ the consolation that we need individually. It's not enough to recognize the grand corporate themes of Scripture. This is a danger in biblical studies that is often undetected. It's very easy if you're studious, to detect the major themes of Scripture and to learn facts about the Bible, but never have them apply to your heart and life. And so I want to look very, uh, at the end here, when we get there, very closely at how does Simeon's example speak to me? How do I need to respond like Simeon responded to Jesus Christ, not in just a mere sentimentality of somewhat restoring the magic of Christmas, but how do I, how do I recognize my deep need for Jesus Christ? And what does, what does his coming have to do with my satisfaction in life? How can I, like Simeon, rest? And hopefully by the end we'll see how much it applies. And I, I do think it applies quite deeply. So I want to begin before Genesis 1.1. We believe that our God is a triune God who is self-existent. He is his own reason for existing. He is self-sustaining. He, in his power, being infinite and unlimited, he is able to cause himself to exist. He is his own reason for existing, and he is sufficient for his own existence. And so when we begin in Genesis 1.1 to hear the words, in the beginning God, we already presume God is before the beginning. And so God is not creating the world out of need, but out of love. That the love of the Father, Son, and Spirit for each other was so great and wonderful, and the plan and purpose of God, which is eternal and unchangeable, was so sure he creates and Creation is an explosion, if you will, or an eruption of the love of God into action in time. He creates out of 
desire. And he gives his image, a part of his nature, some vestige of himself to his creatures, namely humans. He installs in them his image. And then he desires that because of his love, uh, the love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father and the Spirit between them, he desires to install his image in every place on his creation. He wants mankind to be an image bearer of his reign and rule and person, and he wants them to spread and cover the entire earth. This is the purpose for which God created Adam. He said, let us make man in our image and let him have dominion. And then he goes and gives a charge to that man. He says, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. God wants Adam to be like yeast in the earth, rippling through creation and representing him to the created order and ruling over it under him in love. This is God's desire for creation. This is the end for which God created the world, that his glory would be seen in representative image bearers in every place in his creation. Unfortunately, as we know, our first parents, Adam and Eve, completely failed this task. They rebelled against his authority, but though they rebelled, this charge was never revoked. It was diminished, it was distorted, it was twisted, but it was not rescinded. God did not tell Adam, you will no longer be fruitful and multiply. He merely said, there will be a curse. Your work was without a curse, and now there will be a curse to overcome in your work. The, the earth which you were supposed to tend and keep, it's now going to bring up thorns and thistles as well. The, the wife by which you were going to be fruitful and multiply, she will have pain in her multiplying. So this is the curse coming upon Adam and Eve in the created order, but God does not rescind or revoke or remove his original charge to Adam to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and represent him. He, the image of God is marred. It is not destroyed. It is not removed. As the nations multiply after Adam, they begin to, like Adam and Eve, join in this exact same sin. Adam was told to keep the garden. He fails to keep the garden. The nations were told to fill the earth. They fail to spread and instead consolidate themselves together. And though they were given the entire earth, they desire to reach up into the heavens. One of the commentaries that the Lord allows us to see is that God makes an evaluation of their plan that they are desiring to reach up into the heavens with their tower. They were supposed to spread over the earth. They were given the dominion over the earth, and they revolt against that, not being satisfied with the entire created world. They want to take heaven by storm. Just as Adam tries to unseat God's reign over the garden, so also the, these men are, in a way, attempting to unseat the reign of God over the world. They're rebelling against his plan, his design, his authority. Just as Adam was expelled from the garden, likewise, these nations were exiled into the earth. They were dispersed over the face of all of the earth. So you can think of it as a story that is repeating. Adam sins in the garden and he's expelled. Cain sins by killing Abel and he's expelled from Eden into the world. He's exiled, if you will. The people, the sons of men are sinning all over the earth and they are exiled from life through the judgment that comes 
to Noah in the time of Noah, and they are exiled into death, so to speak. And this same pattern is repeating. The people, the nations which were told to spread, consolidate at Babel. They try to make a tower, and God again disperses them and spreads them. It's an act of judgment, but at the very same instant that God's judgment comes upon the nations of men, he then begins to work his plan. Immediately after this, we read in Genesis 12, the very next chapter, that God takes hold of a man named Abram. He does this for the specific purpose, and it has to be heard in the context of what came prior. All the families of the earth have been scattered, and now God lays hold of a man named Abram and gives him a promise that through you, all the families which were just scattered are going to be blessed. There's a plan that God is working to redeem his creation. Renaming him Abraham, God chose him to become the father of a multitude of nations, which would bless the nations which were scattered. As Abraham's descendants multiply, we see this theme begin to be fulfilled. But it's, it's like in a you know, in a movie where you have some notion of what's coming next, the director will give you little signs along the way. Sometimes they're called omens or foreshadowing, or perhaps if you're listening to music, uh, especially like a play or an opera, the, the orchestra will play parts of a theme which will then be expanded and, and you know, brought to fulfillment in the rest of of the play. There's, there's notes along the way that give you hints of what's coming next. We see this in the life of Israel, specifically before, uh, before Joseph uh, goes down to Egypt, God gives him a blessing that his family is going to bow down to him. He gives, he gives Joseph a little bit of understanding, and then Joseph is sent into an exile, if you will, not because of his own sin, but because his brother's are repeating the sin of Cain. They're jealous of their brother. They sort of kill him by placing him in a pit. They tell his father that he's been killed. And then Joseph goes off and bears their sin in the nation of of Egypt. He's raised in authority to a position of high power, and God blesses Joseph with wisdom to interpret a dream for the purpose of saving the world. Joseph explains the dream of Pharaoh, which God gave Pharaoh. He interprets by the Spirit, and God blesses Egypt through that interpretation. So God blesses Joseph, his people. Joseph's blessing cascades into blessing for the nation of Egypt, which in turn, all the world comes and buys grain from Egypt at that famine. Later, when Jacob comes down to dwell in Egypt, he receives their grain. He's blessed through God's blessing, and then he in turn blesses Pharaoh. It's very interesting to understand this because in the Bible, blessing always happens from those who are spiritual forebearers or fathers to children. And so Joseph blesses Pharaoh. He commands a blessing upon Pharaoh. This is a very interesting idea because what the Egyptians do with that blessing is, of course, sinful. Nevertheless, Joseph is blessed of God. He's the patriarch. He goes down and then his father Jacob comes and blesses Pharaoh. He confers a blessing upon the nation. 
When Israel then goes up 400 years later from Egypt, they are going up with a mixed multitude. There's a certain number of people in Egypt who recognize there's blessing upon the Hebrews. We've just been, our entire world has just been destroyed. Let's go with them. This, this is what I think that mixed multitude is connoting. It's, it's describing, there's some recognition that they, recog- they, they see blessing on the people of Israel. They want to join their ranks. They want to be part of this new blessed community as they're leaving Egypt. As the people through the wilderness finally enter the land in the time of Joshua, Joshua records a statement in which he again commends the people to keep the faith of Yahweh to obey his law. And interestingly, in Joshua 8, we see some statements that describe the sojourners of Israel and the children of Israel. What's very strange, if if you're not looking for it, is why are the two words used? Well, clearly there were children who were born of Israel. They, They were born from their parents who were Israelites. And somewhere, somehow, people around them started to join their community. This mixed multitude grew, and it grew quite large. At, at one point in the book of Numbers, there's, there's all of these people who show up, and there's not really a good place to determine where they came from. In some way, God's favor is being recognized on his people, and the nations around them are starting to come and join them. This happens also in the time of the kings. The surrounding nations are blessed. For example, King Solomon is blessed. And as we saw last week, he receives tribute. And we noted that tyrants cannot demand gifts. Demanding a gift is impossible. It's not a gift if if it's demanded. And, And Solomon is receiving gifts and tribute from the nations around. Indeed, the Queen of Sheba comes. She worships God because of the wisdom that that is given to Solomon, and she gives him gold. She is giving a gift in response to the gift she's been given, which is in seeing Solomon's kingdom, she recognizes something about Yahweh. This happens again during the time of Elijah. Elijah is anointed by the Spirit. He leaves Israel during a time of famine and goes to a woman in the the land of Sidon, the, the nation of Tyre and Sidon, and he blesses her with this amazing blessing, and he, he, he gives her a gift in which her flour and her oil doesn't run out in the middle of a famine. It sounds a lot like Joseph, if you remember the story. Naaman, the Syrian army commander, comes to the king of Israel, and interestingly, he sent, he comes to the king of Israel, and he comes expecting blessing not from a prophet. He comes expecting blessing from the king of Israel. He wants to be healed of a physical disease, and so he shows up at the, the doorstep of the palace and wants to talk to the king. He, he believes he's going to receive this healing based on, uh, I think it's his wife's uh, story that she tells him. He expects to receive it from the king. I think that's a significant detail of this story. The king then is flabbergasted. He doesn't understand why Naaman's at his doorstep, and he wants to send him away, but then again, the king understands I should get the prophet involved. So he's told by Elisha to go wash in the Jordan. And after he washes in the Jordan, he is healed physically. And the very next words out of his mouth are, I will only ever offer worship to Yahweh. He gets a blessing through Elisha's blessing and 
becomes a Yahweh worshiper. And then he asks for a special grace to not be considered an idolater when he has to bow in the temple that his king, his Syrian king, worships in. Dozens of other examples from the Old Testament abound. Balaam, Ruth, Jonah was sent to another nation. Nahum, Obadiah are minor prophets who don't prophesy exclusively to Israel. Daniel, of course, with Babylon and Assyria, and Esther again with uh, the Babylonians. And so, over and over again, this theme of God is using his people to bless nations around them, it's unmistakable. It should sound like, you know, a song that you know all the lyrics to. When it starts to play on the radio, you can finish the song. We should be able to to pick up on these themes. In the New Testament, this exact same theme continues. When Jesus was teaching in John 12, one of his disciples comes up to him and says, some Greeks wish to have an audience with you. And he recognizes this as a significant moment. In fact, if you read the book of John, this is really the hinge in the entire book. This begins the move to the Passion Week. Jesus was going to meet with these Greeks, even though he was a Hebrew rabbi. Christ himself, during his ministry, ministered to the Samaritans around Galilee and outside of Galilee. He also ministered to the nations of Tyre and Sidon, the areas outside of the bounds of Galilee, and the Decapolis, which were uh, not purely Israelite cities that were on the periphery of Galilee. And so we see this not just in the Old Testament, but also the New. When Philip is uh, moving on in Acts chapter 8, he is told by God to go run up and join a, a man's chariot. This was an Ethiopian. He was a eunuch. He was a court official in, in the kingdom of Ethiopia. He was returning from worshiping in Jerusalem, and he's reading a copy of Isaiah. And Philip is then in a conversation with him, and Philip, because he's been given the gospel, is able to teach the Ethiopian what Isaiah is speaking about, namely the sufferings of Jesus Christ. The Israelites, before the time of Jesus, established a synagogue system teaching the law. This is in the controversy in Acts 15. We hear a detail of history, which is the synagogue system, which started in Israel to teach the law after the return from the exile, had rippled out of the bounds of the nation and had spread throughout the entire Mediterranean region. The the law was being proclaimed everywhere. The gospel, so to speak, which was given to Moses, rippled through the Mediterranean region. And it didn't do so because they didn't like it. The nations around them wanted those synagogues. They, They attended those synagogues. They were, people were beginning to recognize the blessing on Israel and were joining the nation, so to speak. Clearly, all throughout Scripture, God blesses his people in order to bless the nations around them. That's the whole point of the Old Testament, in a sense. Therefore, the words of this psalmist petitioning God make total sense in that context. They they are very, very clear. In verse 1, we hear in Psalm 67, May God be gracious to us and bless us. Make his face shine upon us. For what purpose? Verse 2, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. You see, the psalmist has no need to explain the causal link between verse 1 and verse 2. 
it is a assumed consequence. The psalmist is asking for blessing, not to restore the people, not to make Israel great, but rather that his name would be renowned, that his name would be honored in every nation. This is the purposes of God. The psalmist is joining with the heart of God. This is what we saw on Christmas Eve, but it's again in this psalm because it's so clearly a major portion of of all scripture. The psalmist here is directly referring to the blessing, the Aaronic blessing, which God commanded the priests to confer upon the people. May God bless you. May God uh, shine the light of his face upon you and give you peace. And the psalmist uses those exact same notions. May God be gracious to us and make his face shine upon us. And then he links it to, not just for spiritual health for Israel, but so that they would be a blessing to their neighbors. As God's special people, they enjoy his blessing by the light of his face. And you can think of it somewhat like a plant growing up in front of a sun. The sun shines upon the plant and the plant then rises and makes a realm of shade and protection around it. This is what happens in Daniel and happens in Jonah. This is an image that we saw back in, uh, I believe it was Psalm 86, I think it was 86, uh, in which this, this, this plant, which God has transplanted, became a large plant and its branches went over the mountains and provided shade. This is the imagery that God is using to describe the blessing for his people. As Israel is blessed, so the nations share in the blessing. The breaking in of God's deliverance and his righteous reign then become the cause for the nations to break out in joy. As we sang this morning, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Why should the nations praise? Verse 4, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For what reason? For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. The deliverance of God, the judgment of God, the righteous deciding of evil versus good, the righteous reign of God as as the moral judge of the nations is the reason why they should praise God. The reason why is because these nations being scattered at the Tower of Babel have run away from God and they have forgotten who he is and they have lived against his law, not according to his law, and they have adopted the worship of of idols who are demons who oppress them, and they trap them in darkness. If you've ever heard missionary stories or descriptions of the religions of the tribes of the earth and the nations of the world, these religious systems that they have adopted through the worship of the created order and not the creator have destroyed their souls and cultures. And so why should they praise God? Because he's going to deliver them. He's going to bring justice to them. He's going to bring blessing on his people to bless them. The reign of Yahweh, therefore, is completely different from the reign of the demigods or little powers which rule these nations. He is going to deliver them. He's not a tyrant. He's not a God who has to be appeased. If you think of the myths of the Greeks and the Norse, and the Egyptians, they have gods who have to be assuaged. They have gods who have to be given human sacrifices to. They have gods who at any moment can break out in tempest and destroy the nation. This is not the sort of God that Yahweh is. That's why the nations should praise. Finally, again, the goal of the blessing of Israel sees its fulfillment in the final verse. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Remember that great need 
or that great desire rather, excuse me, the great desire of God before Genesis 1-1 that the entire earth would be filled with people who worship him, who are his image bearers. Verse 7, part B, fulfills that theme. Let all of the ends of the earth fear him. The psalmist is saying that God's blessing of his people will result in the blessing of, of the nation, and therefore they will fulfill the they they will fill, fulfill the purpose of God. They'll fill the earth, they'll subdue it, they'll make a good use of it. And this is exactly what Simeon is doing when he's praising God as he sees the Christ child. I want to look briefly at the historic context of Simeon's life. Though God's grace abounded to Israel, at this time, before the time of Christ, before his arrival, the nation of Israel and the nations around her are walking in complete darkness. Instead of the nations being blessed by Israel, she herself is overrun by Roman foreign occupation and she is controlled by the Roman Empire. This is, in a sense, a form of exile. Israel didn't leave the land this time, but she is in the land, and she's being overruled in the land. If you remember back to the time of Judges, this is very much like the Philistines coming and raiding the the borders of Israel and, and causing issues and problems. At the same time, they don't have a Davidic king. They have a king who is half Jewish, half Gentile, and their king was not installed by the anointing of Samuel or the anointing of some prophet like Saul and like David and the kings after them. This king, King Herod, was installed by the Roman Senate. And he was installed to rule over Palestine for their purposes. They have an anti-king. If you know anything about Herod's life, he's literally the worst possible type of king you could have. To be a Jew at this time, therefore, would have been to live under a sense of complete judgment of God. It would have been to be living under a spiritual curse, one that infects the entire nation, one that is is as if not only are we in military oppression, not only are we living in a land which is under under the curse of an empire who's militarily conquered us, we also see this as an extension of God's judgment for our sins. This is what it is to be a Jew at the time of Jesus, before Jesus comes. This is the the reality that a God-fearing Jew would have. They would have some notion of things are really, really bad. There's no way out of this. We're, We're in this because of our sins as a people, and we are not yet repenting. So, This is the sort of life and heart that Simeon has. Simeon, therefore, is not merely someone who's casually interested in the temple. He comes to the temple, as Anna does later in this chapter, and spends time there because they see that as the avenue through which God will bring deliverance. They don't, Simeon is not looking for a military overthrow of the Romans. He recognizes we need the Messiah. And so, rather like the patriarchs of old, Simeon is an example of the faith which hopes against hope. He was told by a revelation of the Holy Spirit privately to him that he would not die before he saw the Messiah, the Lord's Christ, the Messiah come in the flesh. Now, I want you to imagine again, we live in Roman occupation. 
We are here because of our sins. The people have adopted pharisaical religious leaders. These are the people who we look up to. And not only that, I've been given a personal promise that the Messiah will come, and now I'm very, very old. This is who Simeon is. It's a lot like the time of Abraham, right? The point is, verse 25 shows us there was a devout man named Simeon, a righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. This is why Israel needs consoled. She needs consoled because everything is wrong. Everything that could be wrong is wrong. Verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's Christ. And we know clearly from the scriptures, Messiah doesn't just mean a spiritual deliverer. It means the one who is to sit on the throne of his father, David. That's, the, that's, the, that's what Messiah means. Simeon is waiting for consolation because the nation needs consolation. He had a personal revelation, and he was directed that day by the Spirit to go up into the temple. Verse 27, he came in the Spirit into the temple. I want you to imagine this. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took him up in his arms. He interrupted their worship. It was such a significant moment. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said... What Simeon does is when he sees this baby who's there to be circumcised according to the custom of the law and and given an offering for his purification, he sees this baby and recognizes in that baby by the Holy Spirit of God, this baby is the answer to national oppression, spiritual darkness, the nations and Israel all walking in sin. That is what the Holy Spirit does. This is why it's so important to understand the, the, the vitality of the Holy Spirit in causing us to recognize who Christ is. You don't look at a baby and see the answer to the world's problems. Simeon is not seeing this by natural eyes. He's seeing this by the Holy Spirit. God has fulfilled his promise to Simeon. Therefore, he says this. this what he, his song that he is about to say is, is got a special Latin name. It, it's called the Nunc Dimittis. And it basically means that he's now able to depart or diminish. Uh, he's now able to, move, to the fore, uh, move from the foreground to the background. And what Simeon does here is he offers up a hymn to God. He offers up a song to God. Verse 29, Lord, he's speaking to God. Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Verse 31, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. What was God's salvation in the psalm? That the light of his face would shine upon us. Verse 32, a light for revelation. He looks at a baby and sees the light of God. This is what Simeon is seeing in this moment. And for glory to your people, Israel. Upon seeing this child, Simeon has seen the light of God, which will be for the blessing of the nations. He doesn't see the child as just an answer to national problems of Israel, but rather world problems. He's a light of revelation for the Gentiles. We see this throughout the entire New Testament. John opens up his gospel declaring Jesus not simply to be a light for Israel, but a light which comes into the world which gives light to everyone. Throughout the gospels, Christ himself teaches, he reveals, 
and he ministers, revealing the heart and nature of the Father to preach to the poor, to heal the sick, to bend up the brokenhearted, to restore broken sinners. The religious leaders of his day are never able to know where he comes from. They are constantly asking the question, who are you, who is your father, where did you come from? And before departing, Jesus himself gives a message to his disciples saying that in seeing me, you've seen the father. His disciples then ask him, Lord, show us the father and it'll be enough. And he then responds, I, I have shown you the father. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. Those first disciples are obviously confused and many of them perhaps did not even understand even in those moments, the final hours of his life, his earthly life, before his death, uh, in the final moments, who he was as the Messiah. The Hebrew writer in Hebrews 1 verse 3 tells us that this was Jesus Christ's purpose and continued existence. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That is who Jesus Christ was. He was a a representation in his earthly ministry and life of the light of God. And that's what Simeon recognizes when by the spirit he looks upon probably an eight or nine day old baby and sees the salvation of Israel. Paul likewise speaks how God has shown in the hearts of his people through his son, Jesus Christ. For God who said, again, going back all the way to creation, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And it's important to understand Paul is not just speaking metaphorically when he says, in the face of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying we need an optical vision of Jesus in his humanity. I'm not saying that we need to contemplate art. But what Simeon is given by the Holy Spirit is a reconciliation between the physical face of Jesus Christ and the light of God's face, which had to come for the people to have any hope for healing. So, why have we done all this hard work? It's because Simeon is actually a model for us. As much as we can tend to avoid these sort of implications or applications of the scripture, consider what it was like to be Simeon. He's lived his entire life under Roman occupation. He's lived under, being a righteous and devout person, he's lived under spiritual confusion his entire life. If he was righteous and devout, he knew the teachings of the Pharisees were wrong. He's... Let's just say he's 80 years old and he sees a baby and is able to, by the Holy Spirit, perceive who he is and see him as the answer for every problem. He beholds the salvation of God by beholding God in the flesh and that's exactly the point of his song. Remember that phrase, nunc dimittis, now I can depart. Do you understand the sort of faith that that takes to be able to say that at the end of your life? The the thing is, when Jesus came into the temple to be circumcised that day, that day was not the end of the Roman occupation. That day was not the end of the Pharisees. Simeon says, I can now die in peace because God's answer is here. Everything in my life isn't fixed yet and I I can die. 
the, the sort of purposes that Simeon might have even hoped to accomplish himself through his righteous living and, and perhaps evangelizing of his neighbors and countrymen, all of that wasn't going to be fulfilled on the day that he died. And yet he trusts God and says, now I can depart in peace. I'm satisfied. I've seen your salvation. I recognize who he is in Jesus Christ and I can, I can die now. My purpose has been answered. That's exactly what Simeon is showing us to do. That's exactly why Luke is recording this. He's, he's giving us an example of personal fulfillment in Jesus Christ despite the problems of life not being answered. As a Christian, you will never get to a time in your life where there are not problems and sins and character flaws that especially for you young men and young women who are just beginning to walk with Christ, you, you are, you, you're wrestling against sin and you're thinking, well, one day I'll get my act together and we'll finally beat this. It may be true that you might defeat that sin, but turn over the next rock. There are always going to be problems. What Simeon shows us to do through his song, now you, you are permitting your servant to depart in peace, is I've recognized Christ as the answer. And even though it hasn't matured, even though it hasn't landed, I'm satisfied. So, like Simeon, we need to, and of course it can only happen by the Holy Spirit, we need a fresh revelation of Jesus Christ. Even as believers, we need to recognize he is the only answer, and even if the answer doesn't come to full fruition in our time, it's going to be okay. God does not depend on me for the salvation of the world. That's why Christ has come, to be a light of revelation to the Gentiles. So let's close. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ. His excellency is far beyond anything that we could hope to put into words. And Lord, you are so kind to have revealed this to Simeon. Lord, I pray that you would give us that same revelation, that by the Holy Spirit, we would be able to look to Jesus Christ, not only for the sins of our country, which are many, not only for the sins of this world, which are many, but for our sins, for the sins of our family, for the sins of our church, for the sins of our community, that we would see Jesus Christ and his atoning work as the only answer. And Lord, that it would be just like Simeon is able to say now he can depart in peace, that it would be well with our soul, that our, our lives would be resting upon the trust of just as you have promised your salvation, so also you will bring it to pass. Lord, we thank you so much for this gift in your word. We do pray, Lord, that you would allow us to be able to see these sorts of things in every place in your word, and that by seeing them by your spirit, we would able we would be able to imitate them in our practice. Lord, we ask for these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.